Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today is Francis Gillis. Francis, a regular contributor to the Digest, is a specialist in security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. He's a senior associate research fellow at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs, CDUB, and a visiting fellow at King's College London. Our conversation today is a look at the ongoing economic and political crisis in Tunisia and how its neighbor Algeria is responding to it. Francis, good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. President Kais Saeed seems really determined to dismantle and deconstruct what few pieces are left from Tunisia's democracy experiment. How successful is his campaign, and what sort of support within the country uh, does he have? Well, basically, Kais Saeed is dismantling slowly and surely uh, what was left of, in any case, an extremely imperfect, I've always hesitated to call it a democracy. He enjoys the tacit support, I still think, of a majority of his countrymen, tacit in the sense of their rejection of the, f- the former politicians or the people who led Tunisia uh, after 2011 remains as complete as it ever was. But there is also another element in this game is that the president is clipping the wings, to put it mildly, of the Innahda, the Islamist party, which played a major role in Tunisian politics until Gay Sayed seized all powers in July, a year and a half ago. And I think that uh, foreign observers often misunderstand or the, the depth of hatred for the Islamists, which runs through uh, Tunisian society. It is much stronger than uh, than many people realize, because for a number of European observers, uh, not least in uh, the United States and England, but also elsewhere, they seem to think that Nahda could help build an open democratic society. Many Tunisians were never under that illusion at all. And uh, as I say, the, they despise the leader of Nahda, Mr. Ranouchi, and there is a real hatred of Nahda. So they sense the president, who is much closer to the United Arab Emirates in Yester Qatar, is doing this. Beyond that, whether there's resignation or what, we don't know, because for the moment, he does have the support of his countrymen. And furthermore, when he makes barbed remarks at the West, These are things which many Tunisians share, because right across North Africa today, there is a growing resentment coming out in public, notably about France, even in a country like Morocco. Uh, So there's a mixture of nationalism, of uh, resignation, um, which is very difficult to, uh, to describe exactly, because it could well be an accident. Things could go wrong. And um, so since the army and the security forces are supporting him, there's no reason for the moment why he should be threatened. And that's interesting, your, your point about how he's able to play this uh, really anti-colonialist uh, uh, card, and that has resonance for a lot of Tunisians. And yet at the same time, when I've talked to young Tunisians like Taro Bolifi, they are completely disenchanted. And not just with Kaisaid, but with the whole 
situation and and many are, are saying they're not even going to bother to vote anymore so there's also this level of apathy isn't there oh yes i think there's very deep resignation is that after the problem is that after 10 years of democracy i mean the west has been cheerleading all along as if there was ever democracy in tunisia but the, the plain fact of the matter is that standards of living have de- deteriorated steadily since about 2013-14. The foreign debt has grown, the number of jobs has dropped, the number of foreign companies invested in Tunisia of leaving the country has increased. Illegal emigration has increased. Last year, it notably took the route of Serbia, because you do not need a visa if you're Tunisian to go to Serbia. So they got into Europe through Serbia. And if you live in Paris, you just noticed that their new Tunisian and indeed Algerian people turning up by the day, usually qualified people. Uh, So, um, you know, there is huge disenchantment, no idea of what what will happen next, but maybe the tacit support for Kais Sayed is also fear of the unknown. Mm. Uh, You know, people are afraid of the unknown, of what might be violence later on, nobody knows. So in a way, you stick with what you've got, even if what you've got is not really what you dream of. Mm. Now, the World Bank and the IMF have decided to, for the time being anyway, halt funding. What impact is that going to have on the economy? And the economy is already, as you've touched on, in dire straits. Well, I mean... The the World Bank is suspending new loans in Tunisia. And the question of why it did it is not entirely clear. The World Bank uh, apparently uh, was concerned about violence after Kaysayed made claims that there was a plot afoot among sub-Saharan Africans to erode the Arab values of Tunisia. And that caused uh, a lot of violence particularly in Tunis. Uh, but look, what about the IMF? What's the situation there, Francis? There is this very strange situation where there is an agreement with the IMF, which is ready to go, which is technically ready to go and has been ready to go since last September. But we do not know. We have no idea, in fact, nor do the Western partners of Tunisia, whether the president will eventually back it or not. And the agreement with the IMF does call for a certain number of reforms, which the president has not been prepared to accept, and which, in fact, many Tunisians are not prepared to accept. At the same time, we have a series of meetings. It's interesting to see ambassadors going to see the new foreign minister and reaffirming that they continue, their country continues to support Tunisia in its negotiations with the IMF. We had the German ambassador last week. We've just had the Swiss ambassador. And there seems to be a game of chicken going on. And uh, the West is not in a very comfortable position. One, because the agenda is full with, uh, you know, Ukraine and all the other crises we face. You can imagine Monsieur Macron in Paris doesn't have much time to spare about Tunisia these days. So tacitly, the money keeps coming. The Italians in particular are batting for the Tunisians. 
arguing that they don't want another immigration crisis because if Tunisia descended into trouble, clearly more Tunisians would leave Tunisia by boat. And the Italians are saying, well, we must support Tunisia because we do not want another wave of Im immigrants in southern Italy. So whether the Europeans are quite united, I'm not sure. What is certain is that the Italians are sort of, in a way, acting as cheerleaders for a little more help for Tunisia. They've just agreed for another $100 million. And uh, the EU, so it's a very confused situation. And of course, the more the EU says, oh, well, we'll give a little more money or we'll continue supporting if we even if we don't like it, the longer it delays, um, you know, uh, whatever crisis might come, because if there is no money, then there will be a problem. But that said, there is money coming into Tunisia, but it's coming in undetected by official radars. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, coming from where, Francis? I will mention two sources. One, the United Arab Emirates is understood to be helping Tunisia. Now, in the days when the Nahda party was in power or sharing power, it would be Qatar who would support Tunisia. Now we have clearly the United Arab Emirates, who do not like Nahda at all, since it's a Muslim Brotherhood. Then we have Algeria. And as I've already mentioned in writing, and I think with you and others in the last year, the Algerians are understood in the past year to 18 months, difficult to say, to have put $1 billion on deposit in the central bank. There are also hundreds of millions of dollars of unpaid Tunisian gas bills towards Algeria. So there is support coming from uh, different sources. The, these are not in the statistics of the central bank. We do not know today exactly what the level of reserves is, nor for that matter do we know, the we never have known actually, the exact value of the gold holdings of the central bank of Tunisia. So, you know, there is still enough to play with. It's not a satisfactory situation. And of course, we can always say it's not going to last forever. But unless people come out into the street, they have protested in recent months, but nothing very serious. We are in Ramadan. Are the shortages getting worse? I don't know. We're at the beginning of Ramadan. But if we pass the month of Ramadan and there are no serious protests, then I'm inclined to say, well, this, this show could continue for another few months. I don't think anybody knows. What's striking is the complete uncertainty today mm. about where Tunisia is heading for. Well, Francis, the um, the question then I want to ask you because I mean you mentioned the army and the security, and and thus far they are backing Kaiseid. But you know, if the economy continues its downward spiral, and 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 given all these unknowns, is there not a point where they say, well? You know what? We need to make a change. Well, this is where, by the nature of things, if there is ever a plot within the security services, we will not know before. It's noticeable that the Minister of the Interior resigned early last week, who'd been a supporter of 
strong support of Kais Sayed since before he became president to be replaced by the governor of Tunis, who's a real hardliner. And uh, the methods used to repress those minor demonstrations there are, to arrest journalists, are clearly meant to send a signal to people, you know, if you move, uh, we will react. But, you know, as I say, the disturbances are not very great. And young people might be very disenchanted, particularly the educated ones. But then there are a whole lot of, there are mass of Tunisians in the smaller towns and in the countryside who have not really been part of this famous democracy. So, you know, they're just trying to survive. And therefore, um, you know, what might come or not come from the security forces, impossible to say, at least for me, from the outside. And as for the army, the army is usually drawn from the old Bourguiba territory, the Sahel region around Sousse and Sfax. It is American trained. It has supported Sayed a year and a half ago when he took full powers. Whether the senior officers consulted the Americans, whom they know very well beforehand, I do not know. Might well be the case. But there's no sign of any move in the army. And I think that I'm not quite sure, but I think it's the Americans, but the, the, all the support for security, which comes from the United States, from Europe, from Algeria, is being maintained because, you know, there's no argument that the Tunisians are doing a good job in maintaining security. And uh, considering that Libya, the situation in Libya is not improving at all, everybody has an interest in that frontier being well guarded and um, security in Tunisia being, you know, in solid hands. So on that front, I don't think the West is going to default at all. On the contrary, because, uh, you know, Libya is a major preoccupation. And then the Algerians are there. The Algerians cooperate with the Tunisian security forces. And there's never been any sign of let up on that front. From day one, the Algerians have been there, including members of the security forces and the army inside Tunisia with the full agreement of the Tunisian military and the Tunisian security. Is, is, is that the primary reason why the Algerians are, you know, you mentioned this $1 billion uh, loan and the fact that the Tunisians owe huge amounts of money for Algerian gas, which presumably the Algerians are not pressing them too hard on right now. What, what is the Algerian stake in, in the continuing stability of Tunisia? Well, the Algerian stake is very simple, is that they don't want serious trouble in Tunisia because uh, they are concerned, like everybody else is, about Libya. Uh, they see no end to the Libya crisis. Therefore, having Tunisia, that southern part of Tunisia, stable, is absolutely fundamental. You know, a billion dollars for Algeria is nothing these days. I mean, in view of the price of oil and gas and the their exports, uh, they can afford a billion, they can afford more, actually. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very little money to pay for helping to secure the stability for the time being of Tunisia. Furthermore, the Tunisian president, who is who looks more to the east than he looks to the north, has criticised the Europeans for not returning the money stolen by the Ben Ali family, that certainly would go down well in Algiers, not that it'll make any difference, but it makes it puts the Europeans on the wrong footing because the Europeans and the Americans have never made any effort on the contrary 
Western banks have always accommodated the money of dictators, dirty money, without protesting. They're very, they like it actually. So, you know, this plays well with the population. And um, he's gone further than that. As you know, he received the head of the Western Saharan Republic, self-proclaimed, which belongs to the uh, Africa Union, last September to the fury of the Moroccans. And in recent weeks, he's gone further because the Algerians and the South Africans have managed to get Israel's status as observer of the African Union reversed. And the Tunisians backed the Algerians and the South Africans. So, you know, Kay Sayed, I don't think he's doing that necessarily to be nice to the Algerians. I think it's like when he makes declarations in favor of the Palestinians. I think that's what he believed. And that actually corresponds to what many Tunisians believe. Because many Tunisians, although Israel and Palestine is certainly not their first preoccupation, if you ask the man in the street, the vast majority of Tunisians are very upset by what is happening to the Palestinians. So, mm. you know, um, this mixture of populism, nationalism, striking a deeper chord is still there. And it does matter. It does matter. I don't think that young Tunisians, even those who are not less well-educated, I don't think they have any illusion that Sayed really understands economics, that he can bring immediate solutions. But somehow he's a man they don't dislike. They certainly dislike him much less than they dislike all the others. Mm. You know, you, you've mentioned Libya, and I, I, I look at my, my Africa map here, and that's a very long border, isn't there, between Algeria and Libya. How much anxiety is there in Algiers about the situation in, in Libya right now? Well, I mean, the, the, the Algerians warned London, Paris, and Washington that if they went into Libya and toppled the regime, this would ma cause major problems across the region. What is interesting is what the Algerians said to Nicolas Sarkozy, David Cameron and Barack Obama was exactly what the British, and now we know the French military, were saying to their political leaders, some French generals have been on the box recently saying, we made clear to our political masters that if you toppled Gaddafi, that would blow the lock on illegal immigration to Europe, which it did, and it would cause trouble in the Sahel countries. That's exactly what happened. So, you know, there's no point to, the Algerians know why it's happened. And uh, the Algerians switched their army, the focus of their defense from the Moroccan border to the border with Libya in February 2013, after the gas field of Inaminas or Tigentourine was attacked by um, Islamist commandos coming from Libya. They've poured billions of dollars into fortifying that frontier. So, so the concern is there, and they watch what is going on in Libya with, with deep interest. Uh, with Algeria, and of course with the, the war in Ukraine, and as you mentioned, uh, the price of uh, gas and, of course, oil has, has, has shot up. You've talked about this before with with us and, and also written in the, in the newsletter about it. The ability of the government, of President Taboon, to 
seize the opportunity to take advantage of it, to do what needs to be done to move the country forward. Do you see that happening? Well, um, I don't I don't think in terms of reform, of economic reforms, we haven't seen anything at all. But if you stick to the energy front, there are two or three points. One, Algeria, since Algeria has been consuming a, a greater percentage of its gas domestically, it has le slightly less gas for export. Nonetheless, it has exported, uh, it has redirected, if you will, uh, some of its exports in the last year. Italy has certainly seen uh, a very big increase in imports from Algeria, but this is gas which might have gone elsewhere, to Britain, to all kinds of places. The That gas goes through the pipeline to Italy, which has been functioning normally since 1983, when it was opened. And uh, there is now 20 billion cubic meters of gas traveling through that pipeline every year. It can go up to 30 billion, so there, there is um, no problem at all. The Italians are heavily engaged in contracts with Sonatrac, the oil company, to search for new oil and gas, to develop existing resources. There are other ways of improving the, uh, the production of gas in Algeria, is that the Algerians have recently seemed to have accepted the idea that they're doing too much flaring of gas, and therefore reducing flaring is not a particularly expensive operation. But as long as you acknowledge it and start doing it, there are probably a few billion cubic meters of gas to be uh, recovered from there. Uh, thirdly, the Algerians have, the government has, it appears, given the agreement to start developing shale. And there is a discussion, a very, very big deal with Chevron, which is underway. Now, Algeria has, according to American sources, the third biggest reserves of shale in the world. So there's plenty of gas to develop if the Algerian government can actually engineer all this. The question there is, does the Algerian government, is it strong enough to push through a very bold policy on this? I somehow have my doubts because one day the president says, oh, we're going to double the exports of gas in the next two or three years, which doesn't make sense at all, impossible. Next day, the head of Sonatrach says, or the Minister of Energy, I forget which of the two, oh, we're going to build a pipewriter to Nigeria to bring Nigerian gas. That was an idea mooted 20 years ago. It'll come to nothing. But So when leading members of the Algerian establishment make declarations, which frankly don't make any sense, it doesn't convince you they're being very serious. That said, it doesn't mean to say they have good engineers, of, there is a new hydrocarbons law, 2019, so it's more liberal. It allows foreigners, foreign companies in more easily, and people and the number of companies are there trying to work, trying to strike deals with the Algerians. They're pilot schemes on hydrogen, which is very important. So the fact that the Algerian government is not all that strong or that we're not speaking of somebody like President Boumediene in the 70s or President Shadley in the 80s, uh, the president of Algeria is, is much weaker, uh, much less knowledgeable. He, but nonetheless, there is a system in place with a strong army. And in the oil and gas company, don't forget the 100,000 people in Sonatrach. It's the biggest oil company in Africa. So even if many people have left, have retired, they're bound to be many good engineers. 
and who knows, people coming up through the ranks. So Algeria is a partner of great interest to Europe, even if one shouldn't be too, too ambitious in the extra amount of gas it could provide. I mean, hydrogen is very interesting, and it's interesting to the Germans. For instance, the Germans, clearly German companies, are looking at Algeria and thinking of engaging more because uh, they build four-wheel drives, military vehicles in Algeria, heavy chemicals could attract investment. And then there is hydrogen. And although this is a cutting edge technology and we're not quite sure how much hydrogen will play or not, what has come up in recent months is, I think it was an Algerian minister who spoke of the Gelsi. That is a pipeline which was mooted in the early part of the century, which would run from eastern Algeria to Genoa and could carry gas directly to Italy and Germany. Now, if you speak to certain sources in Germany and Italy, they will tell you that in the future, that pipeline doesn't make sense if it's only for gas. If it's going to be a pipeline carrying hydrogen, that is a different story. The question of hydrogen is very tantalizing. I'm not a specialist on hydrogen, but clearly hydrogen is called upon to play a greater role exactly when we don't know, because this is cutting edge technology. So my understanding is that this Gelsi pipeline, if ever this pipeline is to be built from Algeria to Genoa, it would make sense if it was meant to carry hydrogen as much, if not more, than gas. So to that extent, the fact that Algeria has these huge reserves, and irrespective of its, let's say, rather mediocre political management at the moment, to put it mildly, Algeria remains an important partner for uh, Western oil and gas companies. And there is a further aspect of Algeria, which is very interesting. The Algerians have always complained, rightly in my view, that the European and Western companies, on the whole, did not transfer much technology in their contracts over 40, 50 years. We are now seeing in weapons where 70% come from Russia, but the rest come from Italy, Germany, and America. We are seeing the Italians transferring technology, apparently in oil and gas, but also in terms of weaponry, fast ships and other things, which the Ital helicopters, which the Italians provide to Algeria. And if European companies do are serious about transferring technology, then the Algerians will sit up and listen because their grievance, which is a common grievance in many parts of the South, if you will, the world of the South, if the Europeans make a bigger effort, and the Italians apparently are, transferring more technology on some weapons would be a very good way of not weaning the Algerians off the Russians, but in buttressing Western interests in Algeria. And the same applies to drones, where two or three years back, I don't, I don't have the exact dates in mind, the Americans sought to sell drones to Algeria, but said that they wanted to retain a measure of control. Where would they be used outside the Algerian territory? The Algerians said, no, thank you. And recently, the Americans have gone back with a much more liberal offer. Exactly what's in it, I don't know, but saying, OK, we sell you drones and basically you do with it what you want. 
Mm. Because they are mindful of the fact that Algeria and South Africa are developing a drone together. Mm. Algeria is already buying Chinese and Turkish drones. So in any case, you can't be more restrictive if you're uh, the, the competing company, be it Turkish, Chinese or whatever, is offering a much better deal. Yeah, yeah, and and the market will will decide. Finally, Francis, let me bring you back to Tunisia. Do you see a way out of this current crisis the country is in? And and if so, what do you think it looks like? Well, I personally, I think I'm not alone. I think that all the people I speak to in Tunis, which I've known Tunisia since 1951, are more perplexed than they've ever been, because they're in a complete fog. And one of the saddest aspects of uh, the situation in Tunisia is that the Tunisian elite since 2011, and by elite, I mean uh, economists, businessmen, and Tunisia does have some good business, some really good businessmen, not all of them by any means. Many of them are rent seekers, but they're some very prominent businessmen, clever, smart, who know the world. There are some very good economists in Tunisia. They have utterly failed to do two things. One was to write an appraisal of what Tunisia had achieved in 15, since independence in 57, between 57, 1957 and 2011, to have a reasonable assessment. What did we do? What went wrong? What didn't go wrong? And draw some conclusions. And the conclusions would have been, one, we've got to put a stop to this break between the interior, which is poor, and the coast, which is overdeveloped and too rich. That's a major point. Secondly, we've got to have a farming policy. Tunisia does not have a farming policy. When it stopped its socialist experiment, it left the best lands which belong to the state in the hands of farmers who don't do much. They don't develop their agriculture, and there's a lot to develop there. Rethink tourism. That the Tunisian elite has been incapable of producing a blueprint for the future of Tunisia. And this has been the major failure of all the presidents and all the governments in Tunisia since 2011. Indeed, even before Mr. Ben Ali was a manager, he wasn't. After 2001, the attacks on New York, he didn't think at all. They just continued with the old model. So if they could come up with something, even a group of economists and businessmen could meet and come up with a 10-page document, but they're incapable of that. And if they came up with a document which contradicted some of the things being insisted upon by the World Bank and the IMF, I'm sure the IMF and the World Bank would be interested. But the, the Tunisians seem to be quite incapable of coming up with any kind of blueprint. 30 years ago, the King of Morocco, uh, Hassan II, understanding that his country needed reforms, got a group of 14 people together, the Jikatos, composed of the best minds economically, business in Morocco. They came up with ideas and they would go and, you know, put on a liberal facade in Washington with the World Bank and the IMF. But these reforms were thought through by a Moroccan elite and they took into consideration what that elite felt were the interests of Morocco. In Algeria in 88-92, it only lasted a short length of time. The reformateur under Mouloud Hamrouche, 
the Prime Minister and President Shadley came up with homegrown reforms. Okay, they ended up by falling foul of elections and, and the civil war in the 90s. The Tunisian elite, which has more economists, which has good economists, well-known people, which has some very good businessmen, it's got some very, very bright minds amongst the younger people as well, in the diaspora is incapable of coming up with a blueprint for the future of the country. And therefore, we are in the fog we are in today. And I must say that never have I felt the, un the, the uncertainty greater. But by the same token, I would not think that the next step could be fire and brimstone. I think we've got to be very careful about thinking that we understand how a country is going to move. We just don't know. It could be a very bad scenario, but it could be something else. Um, you know, there's a famous Algerian Berber saying, a sheikh a hundred years ago saying, pity the people who live in the present, because if you look at the past, you can understand what happened. Those who, in the who, who will live in the future will know what has happened, but we living today, we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Okay, well, on, on that note, uh, we will leave it for today. Thank you so much, Francis. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Gilles. Francis is a senior associate research fellow at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs, CDOB, and a visiting fellow at King's College London. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Francis. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.